Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Mark Sanborn, who is a speaker and author, and I, in fact, I've read a couple of books of his that I really like, and that's part of the reasons I reached out to him. And he has been at Sanborn and Associates, Inc. for 34 years. Um, his books are extremely popular and doing very well. And he has done some research recently that I'm going to ask him about as well. So, Mark, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Well, Dean Waller, my pleasure. Um, so, Mark, I just read The Intention Imperative. And... Not only do I like the content, I like how it's written. It's very well written. Uh, the first chapter really grabbed me. Um, so thank you for writing this book. Well, thank you for reading it. I uh, write books. Uh, you know, we live by faith. You know, uh, if you think back to Field of Dreams, they said, if you build it, they will come. Well, when you write a book, you just hope there were people that, A, will read it, and then, B, will enjoy and benefit from it. So I appreciate the feedback. So, so Mark... Uh, I, I love how you start the book and you say, you know, you, you lead people in a thought exercise of thinking about what are the common characteristics of leaders? And you list some of them and you say, well, clearly none of these stand out as the unequivocal uh, traits or characteristics of a leader. But you have worked with thousands of leaders in your career and at one point, of course, you've written a lot about leadership as well, but at one point you had an epiphany, and the epiphany was that one, I would call it a necessary condition, a necessary condition for a successful leader is that they are intentional. And you do a great job of explaining why. Um, and you use the metaphor of climbing Mount Everest. People don't just happen to be on top of Mount Everest, you know. So, so there's more to your book than that, and we'll talk about that. But I do think this is interesting, you know, because it's really easy for someone to think they might be a good leader because they're charismatic or they're conscientious or because they're extroverts. But we all know counterexamples of all that. Whereas it's hard to imagine someone who's achieved great things that wasn't intentional about it. But how did that epiphany come to you? I've been asked for so many years, you know, what's the one thing all great leaders have in common or a variation of that question? What's the one thing all successful people have in common? And I've always tried to be intellectually honest and say, I don't, I don't know, because uh, as you talked about, having worked with so many leaders, I've worked with leaders that just based on their character and their skill set, you would have thought would have been wildly successful, but weren't. And I've worked with a few leaders that uh, were wildly successful, but maybe didn't deserve to be based on their leadership abilities and then everything in between. Being intentional is about being clear and taking consistent action on a, on a regular, if not a daily basis. Uh, intentional, uh, sometimes I think back to my grandmother used to remind me that the road to hell was paved with good intentions. But those are intentions in terms of what we'd like to do or plan to do, but not what we actually take action to do. So intentional leadership 
is clarity coupled with taking the right action. And in the book, as you know, I talk about the world that is, not the world that was. And it's funny, the book came out just before COVID, fall of 2019. And after sitting in over a couple of weeks, I thought, I better go back and look at the book and see if COVID has negated or changed any of the premises that I made. And the good news for me as an author is that it didn't, because now I think many leaders are going to have to refocus. They're going to have to reexamine their intentions. They're going to have to reclarify the actions to be taken. And it will be very easy for leaders to stop playing to win and just start playing not to lose, to be defensive rather than offensive. There's nothing like a crisis or a plague to do that. So intentional leadership, very simply, being crystal clear on what you're trying to accomplish and taking the right action every day to accomplish it. Well, and I, I liked your example in the book, too, about Domino's Pizza, you know, where you talk about how no one buys Domino's because it's the best pizza. They buy it because of convenience. You know, at one point, Domino's, as you talk about in your book, they admitted they didn't have the best pizza. And they also said, hey, we're an e-commerce company. That was sort of the clarity. You know, we want to be a great e-commerce company. We happen to sell pizza. And as you say, everyone who's used the app for Domino's knows how excellent it is. For example, uh, for a year now, for health reasons, I've become vegan. Um, never thought I would be vegan <laughs> growing up in Kansas City. But I am, and, you know, so I'm often limited. Well, Domino's, if you're vegan, you like Domino's because you can order a thin crust, no dairy, no meat. You, you, you put on the ingredients you want, and it's so easy, and they do it right every time. Normally, when you try to order something that's vegan, they'll, they don't know that that means you shouldn't have dairy as well. But they clearly have taken this to the nth degree. And as you mentioned in your book, the stock price really reflects that. Yeah, the stock price has been crazy. What was gratifying to me, even though when you write a business book and you don't focus on a single company, you have to sometimes paint with fairly broad brushstrokes. And a former executive from Domino's endorsed the book and read the story. And it, he said, of course, you know, there were other nuances and other things that played into it. But that was essentially an accurate story because they were trying to compete on things that they weren't competitive in, like taste and, uh, uh, you know, price. I mean, there's always somebody that can sell a pizza a little bit cheaper or give you a free bottle of uh, soda. But when they, when they realized they were an e-commerce company, it totally changed their orientation. Now, they are an e-commerce company that happens to sell pizza. In other words, they didn't just say, we're going to become an e-commerce company and compete with, uh, you know, Amazon and, and sell books. They were very clear on their product. Oh, by the way, you said something. One of my favorite parts of that story is when Domino's admitted their product quality wasn't very good, in the months that followed, they saw a two to 300% increase in sales. <laughs> this was even before the e-commerce epiphany. And what I, I've always loved is that the customer already knows. It wasn't like people said, really? Oh my God, I thought that was the best pizza I'd ever had. But by being honest and then making a commitment to be better, people really resonated with that. Agreed. 
I'm going to take a little different path right now. I know, you know, of course, you've written a lot of books. You do a lot of speaking. You've worked with really well-known companies. I would like to just find out a little bit more about you. Why are you so interested in leadership? What got you interested in leadership? Well, it's a great question with a bit of a curious answer. I got involved in public speaking. Uh, I grew up in Ohio. You grew up in, in Kansas City. I've eaten red meat grew, growing up three times a day. But having grown up on a farm, I was a member of 4-H. I got involved in public speaking. Initially, it was very, very bad. And that actually is what picked my uh, interest to learn how to be a speaker. And the more I spoke, the more I realized how integral speaking was to leadership. If you're going to be an effective leader, you almost always have to be a good communicator. So I got interested in leadership through FFA, Future Farmers of America, back then, uh, and started speaking in uh, college uh, as an after-dinner speaker to, to earn my way through the Ohio State University, and then went into sales and marketing until I could start speaking full-time. And that was kind of a parallel process for me, how to communicate well and what is it that enables anybody. And one of my books is you don't need a title to be a leader. So I don't believe that titles make one a leader. I think a title should confirm leadership, but we've all worked for titled leaders that, you know, as John Gardner famously said, couldn't lead a group of seven-year-olds to an ice cream truck. Um, so I started studying, you know, what makes leaders effective. And I've been doing that for the past 30 plus years. And when COVID hit, I became fascinated with how leaders did. So we researched, uh, ask employees how their leaders did and, and found out a lot of things. The, the highest leaders scored in across five generations was communication. Only 50 some percent of one generation said they did well. In other words, there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, you might hope, for instance, that leaders would score uh, 90 or uh, 95, but they were scoring well under 50% in most categories. What leaders did least well, but especially Gen Z, the newest uh, level of employees in the workforce, was keep morale up. But the thing that came out of it that, to me, I'm most interested in is that uh, roughly a third of all the respondents, a thousand plus respondents, were optimistic that life would be better after COVID. About 50% thought life would be the same. Now, I think one of the things that leaders can do is help people make good on that belief. You know, if you have one third of your workforce roughly that already thinks things are gonna be better, don't discourage that, use that optimism and help them find ways to make things better. For the 50% that said things will be the same, that's not a damning indictment. That's to me a little delusional. I don't think the world will be the same as it was pre-COVID. But again, if you can show them how the world can be better than it was pre-COVID, now you've got a, a real purpose for that, that group. Everyone, however, scored anxiety is high. So you have an optimistic group of people, but everybody's anxious. So I think that right now the two levers of leadership is how do we reduce anxiety in very real ways, not just pep talks, but in safety and procedures and protocols. How do we reduce anxiety and how do we show people that it doesn't have to be an either or that we can have challenges and make things better you know i i went to uh, my dentist recently and i was really impressed with how he reduced anxiety they went out to the car took your temperature brought you in at certain door you know how dental offices have a smell about them because of the chemicals they use and everything 
It didn't. And it didn't because they have so much air filtration going on. But they were really clear to me as they were walking me in about all the things they did to make it safe. And I wasn't that anxious about it anyway, but I could see for someone who was, you know, that would take away a lot of fear. And I've been encouraging and teaching my clients that we live in the age of show and tell, not tell and sell. Tell and sell says, uh, you know, you're safe coming in, so come get your teeth cleaned. Show and tell demonstrates why you're safe. It reinforces the messaging. And I was at a Texas Roadhouse, who I, of course, write about in the intention imperative. And all restaurants, uh, I shouldn't say all, but the vast majority, you know, are taking the social distancing and uh, uh, other protocols seriously. But while I was waiting to go in Texas Roadhouse, there was a young woman in a mask with a bottle of disinfectant cleaning off surfaces outside the restaurant where there was a sign that had the menu on it where people sat. And I thought, you know, that's far more powerful than saying we disinfect both inside and outside. How do I know that you're not just blowing smoke? But when I see someone doing that, that's what I call show and tell versus the old school of just tell and sell. You know, another chapter in your book that I thought was really interesting was the culture imperative. Looking at culture, you, you talk about it as an engine for the organization. Would you mind elaborating on that just a little bit? Well, I wanted to write about culture for two reasons. One, I think it's one of the three big shifts that leaders have been making and need to continue to make. But more importantly, it's probably the one word in business that is most used and least understood. I define it as everything we think and believe that results in what we attempt and achieve. It's what we think and believe because being told something is true doesn't mean we believe it. Culture is about what people really believe, not what they've been told. And I, I think COVID was a good example. It was your culture that helped you survive well or not so well during COVID-19, not your org chart. And in the book, I wanted to talk about, you know, what are the levers that you have for creating a positive culture versus just inheriting the one you've already got? And, and one of my favorites is hire for culture. If, if you're in a financial services firm and you're hiring a new accountant, uh, and you've got three really good accountants, don't just hire the, the most educated, assuming they're all competent and good at what they do, hire the one that most fits the culture you work in, in terms of attitude and enthusiasm and professionalism and values. Because too often we get utilitarian and we hire for function alone, but you've got a couple function with culture. And those are the things that make your culture easier to maintain when you surround yourself with people who already are oriented uh, that way. So Mark, the Walton College has over 6,100 undergraduates and about over 500 graduate students. And, you know, a lot of them come from, about 40% come from Arkansas, about 33% come from Texas and then all over the country. They're, we're in a of course, a large public school. Many of them come from large public schools. And I think a lot of times, especially those that have come from large schools in big cities like Dallas, they may not have had as much experience or opportunities to do public speaking. And that's clearly one of your strengths. You, you've done it for many years. Could you give them some advice about what, should, what could they be doing while they're in school to become a better public speaker? 
I'd be glad to, but let me first say, I don't know of any skill that will serve you better in the world of business or organizational leadership than communication. Doesn't mean it's the only skill or the most important skill, but it is the one that will most leverage your competency and, and uh, your skill set. Now, having said that, the best way to learn to speak is the same way you learn to ski or ride a bike. And that is you get on the bike or the skis or you get in front of an audience and you try. Now, there is a big difference uh, when you speak for the first time or try to ski or ride a bike for the first time, you usually fail to some degree. But that is true with just about any skill. People always act like speaking should be something that on our first try we should be amazing at. But it's like most things, you learn by doing it. However, just doing it won't make you better. Two things will make you better. Number one is preparation. The number one reason why people fail is they think speaking is easy and they don't prepare. You just have to be more prepared than you could have imagined if you want to do a good job. Because whatever you've done, if you have done something to practice before you get up to introduce a speaker or say an invocation or summarize a, a book in front of the class, all that preparation is done in the comfort of your, your dorm room or your apartment or your home. And when you finally get in front of people and that adrenaline kicks in, because it is uh, can be frightening to be in front of a group of people, now all that practice goes out the window, unless you have ingrained it so deeply that it just comes like second nature. So preparation is key. The second thing that will make you a better public speaker is to realize that you're not trying to impress people, you're trying to influence them. It, because if impressing people is changing how they think about you, influence is changing what they do after they hear you speak. One is about perception, one is about performance. So the question becomes, what do you want them to think, feel, and or do when you're done speaking? If you're introducing someone, you want them to think the speaker is credible and feel glad that they came and give them a warm reception. If you're giving an invocation, you want people to feel it was sincere and think that the words that you spoke were uh, well thought out. And, and then you want them to, to do something, at least agree in concept that there is a, a spiritual dimension to whatever event you've given the invocation to. So I would begin by saying, what do you want people to think, feel and or do when you're done speaking? and then prepare, prepare, prepare. I, I totally agree. There's no question. Preparation makes a huge difference and thinking about the audience that you're speaking to. So, so Mark, uh, again, another rabbit trail I'd like to go down with you. Back in 1998, the Walton family gave our business school at the time what was the largest gift ever given to a public business school. And they've given us a lot of money since then. But when we were given the gift and we became the Sam M. Walton College of Business, we went through our first strategic planning process and we came up with our vision and mission and values. The vision and mission actually have changed since then, but the values haven't. And the values are uh, summarized by the acronym EPIC, Excellence, Professionalism, Innovation, and Collegiality. What's really interesting about this is we came up with a tagline to tie our values and our vision together, and it really works well. So our vision is to, through our teaching, research, and service, to be thought leaders and catalysts for transforming lives. So that part, catalyst for transforming lives. So we, we came up with this term, the epic, as our tagline. But uh, 
do you have anything, any thoughts on um, our values? I do. You know, I love the quote from Roy Disney who said, when values are clear, decision-making is easy. I say that, you know, vision is where you're trying to go. Missions, why you're trying, why you're trying to go there, but values determine how you get there. Values shape our behavior. So you can have different values and you'll change the process by which you either attain or don't attain your, your vision. I also think that, you know, when you work with an organization, the key to values is that everybody understands them and lives by them, not that they just have them printed on the back of the annual report or on a card that you give new hires. So, you know, it's got to be about a commitment and then it's got to be about people understanding how you live those values out day to day. Uh, I love, uh, you know, the idea of excellence uh, because uh, we, we can't always be best, but we can always be excellent in the areas that are important. Uh, the idea of professionalism, uh, professionalism, again, is a choice. These are all values. Uh, some things, you know, you have to get from others. These are four values that are internal, that you control. And professionalism makes all the difference. It's about how people perceive you. And I always like to say that when it comes to style and substance, if you had to choose, choose substance. But remember that style leverages substance. I mean, we all know people that are deep thinkers, thought leaders, but they just kind of look like a train wreck or they're eccentric or they're unusual in their pre presentation. And unfortunately, maybe even unfairly, it prevents people from really understanding and taking them seriously. Uh, innovation, uh, you know, I say in my work, you emulate to learn, but you innovate to earn. So when you're an undergrad, you learn what the great leaders and the great companies did. And initially you emulate until you learn how to do it too, but you'll only ever be as good as another company or another leader until you innovate. Innovate means you do something better, uh, not uh, something different, not just do what everybody else is doing. And I, I think of the four, collegiality is my favorite because it's a word I use, but you don't hear that much. You know, we, we often hear team building or cooperation or participation, but collegiality means you hold others on, on the same level as you, even though they might have different responsibilities and skill sets uh, and, and jobs. Collegiality is about being a, a hail fellow or a hail woman who people like because I think professionalism is what people think of you, but collegiality is how you treat others. And when we uh, realize that uh, nothing great, including climbing Mount Everest, is ever accomplished uh, by an individual, by him or herself, then collegiality is a, is a great way to end that be epic. I'm glad I asked you that question. <laughs> I like that explanation of epic. Uh, I haven't heard that, but that's great. Thank you. So uh, you grew up in Ohio. You now live in Colorado. And you've spoken... Uh, all over the country and around the world. In all of your travels of meeting with lots of leaders and speaking to lots of groups, what are some things that stand out to you as, for example, with COVID? I mean, no one knows what life is going to be like after COVID. And you've you've said that, but clearly things are changing, right? We're we're we're. I mean, normally, seriously, before COVID, I did all of my podcast interviews face to face. So if I would have interviewed you, I would have flown to Colorado. I would have seen you face to face. And now I'm not. That changes things. So what are some things that come out 
stand out to you that will change in your world uh, going forward? It's interesting because COVID has challenged all of our assumptions. And frankly, there are assumptions we could have challenged ourselves, but didn't have to. Uh, the idea of remote work, we know that remote work can work, but there is a, an energy and a creativity and an enthusiasm that happens when people work together in groups or teams. So I think, again, as I said earlier, most good things in leadership and business aren't ors, they're ands. Yes, we can work remotely and we need the face-to-face -face interaction as, as the times allow us. Uh, I think that one of the other things is that we realize that the uh, hierarchy is uh, not nearly as important as the culture. You know, the structure of your organization is less important than how people are committed to your organization, what they're willing to do. And what's changed the most in leadership, this happened before COVID, but it continues to happen, is less about leaders and more about followers. And that is today, if you're an effective leader, you don't treat the people who you lead like followers. You treat them like colleagues and contributors and coworkers and team members. Because a follower suggests that you simply tell them what to do and they follow instructions. And that might have worked back in 1950 when you were building cars in Detroit, but it doesn't work well in 2020 and beyond. I think we should begin with all the common questions we ask and the common assumptions that we make and say, what if that wasn't true? But I think we can do that too as leaders. We can just challenge our own assumptions. I mean, for me, what I like most is presenting on stage to a group of 200 or 2,000 or 20,000 people. That hadn't happened since March 1st of this year, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. So I had to challenge my assumptions and realize that I'm in the business of conveying ideas. Thanks to Zoom and GoToMeeting and Microsoft and studios that I've partnered with, I can continue to disseminate my expertise just on different platforms. Discipline is the ability to do what you need to do, even if you don't want to do it. And discipline is going to be required because if I said, you know, if I can't talk in front of a live audience, I'm going to sit on my hands until I can. Uh, that would not end well for me, my business, or my family. Great point. So, Mark, in COVID, leaders are being stressed to make tons of decisions in record times. We've been doing it at the university, just left and right. But it's scary for leaders to do that, you know, because you don't know if you're making the right decision. What advice would you give to them? Well, the good news is you're not going to get it all right, and that's all right. Uh, nobody in leadership is expected to be clairvoyant. The only thing you should be worried about is not working hard enough to be well-informed on the decisions that you make. Important decisions are often compressed into a short period of time, but that doesn't mean you can't use the time you have to get the information you need. And that, to me, personally, has been frustrating that there has been so much disinformation and so much contrary information during this time but you do the hard work of making sure that the information you have is good and you make the decision knowing that your responsibility was to make the best decision you could, not to get every decision right. For those of you listening to this, if you want to learn more about Mark Sanborn and his, his work, which I think is excellent, uh, he's got a website called MarkSanborn.com. So it's M-A-R-K-S-A-N-B-O-R-N.com. 
Well, thank you. Yeah, the website is kind of uh, the, the mothership for my accounts like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. So as long as people can remember my name, they can find the website. And I do try to provide as much information as I can that'll help people improve their businesses and their lives, whether or not they ever read uh, any of my books or hear me speak live and in person. I really appreciate you taking time, Mark, to talk to, to me about your book, to talk about communication and to talk about the future. Uh, we really do appreciate you. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Dean Waller, and all the best to you and the students, alumni, and listeners of this uh, podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C Podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.